morning, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Japan time. Yeah. Uh, good evening, everyone. And uh, it's really great to see a lot of you, a lot of old faces, and including some of my teachers. Uh, you know, Reverend Sasaki was probably the first minister that I, I studied with way back when, as long as you used to come once a month from Stockton to do his study class in, in English. So, uh, if it weren't for him, uh, I might not be in this business. So, I can blame you. <laughs> uh, but seriously, and, and, and the Mountain View people here, and uh, many of the people that I've known, um, you know, it's been about uh, eight and a half years since I moved back or to Japan, and uh, I'm glad that I can still speak English. <laughs> uh, actually, no, seriously, I, I don't uh, really uh, speak, uh, use English to talk about Buddhism very much because most of the time my classes, uh, my classes are all in Japanese and I teach this course called the Kyose, uh, Kyose, Living Together or Interdependence and it's one of the compulsory classes of our, at our university. So I have about 230 students in one class and another 180. And they try to keep, try to keep um, you know, uh, 18 to 19-year-old Japanese young people attentive when you talk about Buddhism. It's quite a task. Although uh, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. and uh, But it's really a challenge and very rewarding to be able to share my brand of uh, Buddhism to, to the Japanese. If you think about it, it's very ironic, isn't it? I mean, here, uh, a Japanese-American who started learning Buddhism and thought about Buddhism in America, uh, going back to Japan and teaching Japanese uh, uh, young people about Buddhism, uh, regarding which they know very little, because as you, many of you know, they don't go to church uh, and go to Dharma school, and, and so they, they, they don't have much of a formal uh, training in Buddhism. But it's interesting that they do pick up quite fast. I think there is still a sentiment and a kind of an underlying cultural uh, element that allows them to uh, to pick up on ideas like impermanence and uh, interdependence like Engi, Wujo. So it, it's, uh, it, it's, not, uh, it, it, it's not as bad as uh, I was in thought. <laughs> uh, well, thank you also for coming out on Valentine's Day. And uh, when, I, when I was asked by Dr. Kane, when do you want to do it, I just said, well, you know, I was kind of middle of the week and so I just did the 14th and never thought it was uh, uh, Valentine. Has Valentine always been on the 14th? <laughs> <laughs> I don't to show how much uh, my wife has received uh, <laughs> presents. Uh, uh, although this year I did, when I when I left uh, a week ago, I did leave her with a uh, dozen set of roses. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, why did I pick this topic? And I have an outline here, and probably not a good idea to really stare at it because it's kind of detailed, and I may not cover everything in, in, in depth, 
but I want to go through it uh, uh, basically following the outline and hopefully that uh, you'll have a chance to look at it more carefully when you get back. Um, so, uh, rethinking Amida. And why do I, why did I choose this topic? Well, you know, obviously it's the most essential teaching in Jerusalem. And as institutionally speaking, as a minister, uh, it's something that uh, I need to be clear about. Uh, not, just, not simply the traditional understanding, but particularly how do we talk about Amida in a modern context. So as a minister, it's something that I was um, thinking about. Also, uh, I'm currently the, I became the new president of the International Association of Shin Buddhist Studies. It's an association that probably a lot of you don't know about, and if you are interested, please uh, consider becoming part uh, of that institution. There are actually about uh, 300 members uh, throughout the world, well, uh, maybe that's overstating, uh, mostly in Japan, about 200 in Japan, another 50 or 50 in North America, 35 or so in Hawaii, but we have chapters in South America, and then we have another chapter called Oceania and East Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and then uh, uh, Asia, other than Japan. And then uh, we have a pretty strong contingent in Europe. Actually, in Europe, uh, Shin Buddhism uh, is, uh, there are a number of very fervent, uh, strong followers of Shinshu. And uh, they have a meeting uh, every two years. Uh, we have meetings. The whole, the international group, we have a meeting uh, every two years, and on the off-season, or off-year, they have their own. So, actually, uh, so, uh, so that's the extent of our, so, we, we, I like to see the uh, association become the spearhead for thinking uh, about the Jyotishi thought and also Pulev thought. I also get involved in, um, interface uh, groups, and uh, you know, it's important for me to know uh, know what um, how, how to talk about Amida. And uh, this year, I'm fortunate to go to Europe. I'll be scheduled to go to Europe twice for interface uh, uh, conferences, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, I'll be asked to talk about Amida. In fact, in one of the trips, I've been asked to be an attendant for Gomonshu, the his eminence Otani to be his academic advisor, so I need to, to make sure that I know what I'm talking about, I don't want to embarrass him. So things like that uh, is very challenging and uh, for the institution. Personally, Amida uh, has always been a concern of mine, ever since I started with uh, Reverend Sokhati, and uh, it's been um, a constant uh, concern and interest. It's almost like a koan, what is Amida? And uh, you know, before I came to Buddhism, I was going to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Probably some of the Mount people don't know about it, but I was going to. But um, I became disappointed, uh, frustrated with the idea of God, uh, all, all loving God, and why He creates all this mess in the world. And that kind of a, con a contradiction uh, was one of the reasons why I left uh, uh, going to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But Amida was much more uh, appealing. Uh, it made more sense. Yet, uh, 
again, then it's not like God, so what is it? It's, it's a, um, now, today, as I give this talk, um, you know, there's a question as to, am I giving this talk as a scholar or an academic or as a minister? You know, it, it's probably some of you might be wondering, sponsored uh, by ideas, so even if you're academic, you know. Um, well, in a way, that dichotomy between academic and, and religious, uh, they don't really have to conflict. I think that you can be both. Uh, in fact, uh, Shindan uh, was, uh, was a, a religious speaker, but he was very academic, very scholarly. So that we need that kind of uh, welding of the two approaches. So IBS is very unique in that it, it offers both dimensions. And, uh, uh, and, 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 and one thing we need to realize that yes, there are academic approaches that are a little different. You know, they're much more, act, uh, much more objective and philological and, 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 uh, it's, it's what some of you might think as academic and scholarly. It's what they do at UC Berkeley. Uh, the PhD that I got at Berkeley was very philological. You read texts, Sanskrit texts and Chinese texts and, 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 uh, but, um, but I think that there is another kind of academic, uh, uh, academic endeavor. And one, one example that I did the other day, I went to uh, a conference at Berkeley called uh, uh, a conference entitled uh, "Can There Be Was It um, Is There Room for Oh Yeah Does Humor Belong in Buddhism?" And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it does. But we have these eminent scholars who were there. And um, uh, and then they talked about the analyzed humor and all that, and it was quite interesting for what it is. It's a philological approach. But at the very end, someone raised a hand. A young man said, uh, uh, "This may be a very naive question, but why does Dalai Lama smile?" <laughs> and then there were four eminent scholars, and they looked at each other, and they couldn't answer because. It was, they didn't find it in a text that they were looking at. <laughs> but to me it was very simple. I think that if you have awakening and understanding, uh, awareness, that you tend to be happy with them and you smile. But the, the fact that they, it, it's not that they couldn't answer, but I think obviously they, could, they probably could have, but given the academic approach that they were taking, that it was not within their purview, that they couldn't, so it, that kind of academic, that it may not be very religious, it's not no, human, it doesn't have the real life, the warmth to it. But my approach has always been both. It, it's never been philological and objective. That's why I didn't do very well. <laughs> I suffered through using the Berkeley PhD program. It took me eight long years. Really, I mean, I went with two masters, one from IDS, one from Tokyo University. So I went here thinking I can went through in, in, in three years. It took me eight years, just an academic program. <coughs> my mother-in-law asked my, my wife, I hear your husband's pretty smart, but if, if he's so smart, how come he can't graduate? <laughs> 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 and it really was very painful because I was feeling the same way too. <laughs> All my other uh, uh, buddies were very good in languages. <coughs> you know, I can do languages if I wanted to, but to me, I felt 
you know, just objective reaction as opposed is not what why I started this path. And, and so it's always been spiritual and religious. Now, um, so to start this uh, discussion off, I wanted to share an anecdote that uh, Dr. Ajit Bruno has talked about, and I think he's written in one of his books, and many times you have heard this. Uh, I think it was his grandmother, uh, when she was on her deathbed, uh, people were, you know, the family were, uh, members had, had gathered and kind of, you know, uh, watching, uh, caring for her and, and being with her. And when she was just about ready to go, I think someone said, you know, don't worry, we'll meet you in a few hands. And I understand that she just kind of couldn't speak, but she just kind of waved her hand like this and said, no, pure land, Amida, they don't exist like that. They don't exist like that. Uh, here, here is a, a, a minister's wife coming from a, a long line of temple family. Uh, her husband is a minister. Her son is a minister. You know, obviously, she's not, she knows about the doctrine and teaching. But she says, no, he doesn't exist. So when I heard this, I said, wow. I mean, she doesn't think it exists, or she doesn't think Amida exists, then what is this all about? What does she mean by this? What do you think she means? What, what do you think she meant by that? Well, I just want to put that on the table, and I don't want to give my, my answer, uh, um, but I just want to put that on the table uh, as, as the to what that may have meant, that may, what we may have meant to, to her. So, now, um, I want to start by uh, uh, talking about some of the Japanese modern thinkers or Buddhist thinkers who feel the sense of crisis. And some of these people, uh, well, I'm only going to mention about three of them, but one is uh, uh, a psychologist, a Christian theologian, and a Buddhist thinker by the name of Okana Moriya. And I, I, I read one of his books at a uh, bookstore. It was called Self and Non-Self. And I was just very, very bored. Uh, uh, everything he said made sense to me. And so uh, I called him up right away, and, and I asked him to see if I could see, uh, meet with him. And I got to, I met him, I got to be his friend, and now, uh, you know, we see each other quite often at discussion groups and study classes. And in fact, uh, we're thinking now of starting an academic association called Buddhist Psychological Association, Buddhist Psychology. And he's, he's really, it's interesting, he still is a Christian, I mean, devotionally, but he's very interested in, in Buddhism, especially the Yogacara uh, tradition. And where do you find, and, and so, the sense of, he feels that Buddhism isn't really being talked about uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that, that makes sense. And um, he, he feels that here, um, that in Buddhism there is a kind of a, a different levels of, of, uh, of Buddhism. He says basically at the core is what he calls spirituality, you know, awakening, a real experience. Of, of, of the tradition. Then there is the philosophical, rational explanation of this. 
And then there's the mythic uh, presentation. Uh, and he includes the idea of reincarnation in and the mythic on the mythic level. Not here. He doesn't think that reincarnation belongs here. Okay? But um, and then the magical. Well, but what I mean by magical is that, you know, it's really interesting, even in Japan today, in modern Japan, a lot of people have a kind of a, uh, a, a magical sense of, of understanding of Buddhism. And one example that, that uh, I wanted to share with you, that, you know, NHK, they have a, a daily drama. And uh, uh, every morning at uh, uh, 8.15 and 12.45, they have... 15 minutes of uh, uh, drama that goes for half a year. Well, in one of the the, the scenes, the they, they, uh, the main per, uh, the main person gets as a gift a statue of Guanyin, a Kanon, and it has many arms. And uh, uh, as she was handling it, an arm fell off. Okay. And then, oh, you should have seen the reaction. She goes, oh, no. Oh, Bajida Ataru, you know. You know, I've been punished for this. And I was just uh, so intrigued by this. And then uh, a number of series after, a number of shows, even for a number of shows, other people reacted in the same way. That here is a Buddhist, Buddhist statue, and he has some magical power, and if you break it, then something bad will happen, or you'll be punished. And this is from NHK, National Broadcasting, you know. So I, I, I thought that it does reflect a kind of a mentality that uh, a lot of Japanese people have. Uh, I often go, I'm always, what I enjoy doing is I, when I go to temple, like Akatsuka uh, uh, Temple in Tokyo, that all these people gather where the incense is. You know what they do with the incense when they go to the incense? They go like this, right? Yeah. Uh, to reap the benefit of the purity of the incense. And if you can tell where they're having problems by where they, you know, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, older all, all people always go like this. <laughs> and I can understand it now that, now that I'm getting, getting closer. But uh, for children, you know where they do the, 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 the incense smoke? They always put it on their head. Yeah. The grandmother and the parents put it on the children's heads so that they'll get smarter, so they can get into Tokyo University. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, hold on, now I accept the name. Uh, so uh, uh, Professor Okano, uh, he feels that we have to talk about the spiritual, and and and, and while he doesn't say throw this out that he feels that some of this is important and it, it is a kind of a, 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 a source or a way for people to relate to Buddhism, but that that if you're talking about Buddhism, then you have to talk about the spirituality, the experience of, of Shinran, the experience of, of the great masters, and the experience of ordinary people, uh, when they have uh, realized something uh, uh, deep within. So, um, uh, I, I thought that this kind of way of looking at it, and we have it in BCA, not to the same extent. Uh, I, I, I just don't have time to give you some examples, but uh, 
Uh, well, one is that if you don't do your memorial service before the death uh, day of the uh, death, that something will, you know, you, it's not a good thing. Yeah, 49 days. That always intrigued me, and even Americans are very concerned about that. But that's on, on this mythic level. Uh, on this level, it really shouldn't matter. On another, Okano, he is a psychotherapist. So, uh, in America, Buddhism, psychotherapy, and psychology really go together. In fact, there are hundreds of books on psychology and Buddhism. In fact, it's a way for Buddhism to come into America. So, uh, but, but uh, in Japan, it's not so much the case. And he's, uh, you know, kind of developmental psychologist, transpersonal psychology, so he was very much moved by Ken Wilber and, uh, and earlier people like John uh, Piaget and and uh, 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 Mr. Ellis, who does uh, rational, uh, rational psychology or therapy. But he says that, okay, you know, uh, uh, basically developmental psychology of, you know, simply put, you know, pre-personal, personal, and transpersonal. Well, uh, transpersonal psychology especially would, would put this at the end. So you start out from here as you go through adolescence and all that, and, uh, and then become adult. Uh, then you develop your per personal, the sense of the I, the self. Uh, we have an expert here, a number of experts here, so that you can add if you, later on if you'd like. But Mr. O'Connell feels that Buddhism talks about here, transpersonal. When we say non-self, you know, Buddha, he says that we have, we can only talk about Buddha when we have developed the self. That before developing the self, uh, you can't really talk about the Buddha. So Buddhism, traditional Buddhism, begins basically from this perspective. So Buddhism often doesn't have much to say about development, children's development, and how one develops a sense of I, sense of confidence in living in the world. I recall, actually I recall, he was at Palo Alto many years ago when I was given a talk, and one young uh, mother came up to me afterwards, and she says, you guys, you guys are probably ministers. All you talk about is, you know, non-self and sacrifice and, and, and you know, uh, uh, realizing your evil self and all of this. But I want my son to develop a strong sense of the self. So what you're teaching really doesn't really fit what, uh, what, what my son needs. She never talks about herself. You know, she's always talking about my son. That's part of the problem too, but, but she has a point. She does have a point. She does have a point that, um, uh, in, in Japan you can get away with it. Or at least in the past you were able to get, a, get away with it. Because, um, Buddhism really wasn't dealing with at, at, at this level. But now he says, that if, if, if Buddhism is to make sense to the Japanese people, then this part has to be considered. And he basically feels Buddhism doesn't have much to say here, so just bring in psychology. Mm -hmm. So synthesize psychology and Buddhism, and you get a, a, a cradle to grave kind of a, a process. So I don't know how much you think about it. I think this is what. So uh, Mr. Ogano is a very interesting guy. I mean, I, I find him, uh, and he's been talking to the psychologists, though they don't listen to him. 
and they're very, you know, upfront, outspoken. And one of the things that they say is that he, they, they feel that Buddhism focuses so much on wisdom, the purity of wisdom, and not enough on the ignorance. So in Japanese, that the kanji is cheap for wisdom, but cheap also can a different kanji, but it can be ignorant. So they, they criticize the present Buddhism as talking too much about cheap and wisdom, and, and, and not enough about the, the, the reality of himself. So uh, here is this uh, you know, prover- proverbial uh, metaphor in Buddhism of the lotus, and the lotus blooms because of the mud. And without the mud, the, you know, the, the three poisons, the, the ignorance, the greed, and the hatred, out of this, uh, lotus, uh, can flower. But you have to, but they say, Buddhist, the present Buddhism focuses just on the flower. And what that does is that it divorces itself from the society. That we are on another level, a pristine level, and not really concerned about this. And, you know, when they, when they said that, I think, that's right. There is that tendency. And, uh, so, so, and, and they, they feel that we, we need to take, uh, both into account. And they, uh, especially Machida Soho makes the point that, that's why Joro Shinshu or Joro Shu people chant the language. So here you have, uh, Machida, he, he studied the, uh, Joro Shu. But he's also a, he's just a very hardcore Zen for 20 years. So even someone like him, he he said that uh, uh, you, uh, he acknowledged the fact that uh, as long as we, we we continue to breathe, we breathe that uh, that uh, we'll always have this mud. And and in a way, he's hinting that uh, Pure Land Buddhism may may be right on that point. So, but the point that I wanted to make is that because of uh, the failure of the institutional Buddhism to talk about this part, focusing this, that it, it kind of divorces itself from society and it, it doesn't have the kind of uh, engaged Buddhism that you find in Sri Lanka or, uh, uh, or in America. So, I think that's an interesting point. Now, uh, the, the third person and, and the key person in, uh, for, for our purpose is, uh, uh, Weyama Daishin. And, uh, Weyama Daishin is a, uh, he is a part of the Honganji Institution. He is the head of the Doctrinal Propagation Institute. He's a former president of Duke University. He retired and now is head of the Honganji an institution that deals with doctrine and teaching and propagation. He wrote this article recently uh, in, in their journal, which changed its name, by the way, to be more relevant to the modern world. And he uh, uh, wholesale, he critiques the problems that he finds in Hongganji. And uh, if you can read Japanese, I would suggest that you, you look at it. Uh, it's uh, very, very uh, enlightening. And he has established a, you know, the headquarters is in Kyoto, but he established a branch in Tokyo, and he invited me, because I live in Tokyo, and a few other people to participate in a monthly study class. So I've been attending them. And the reason why he, I, I said, how come you set it up here in Tokyo? And he said, well, if we stay in Kyoto, it's harder to talk. <laughs> uh, because 
there's so much tradition there. And he felt that in Tokyo you can be more free. Uh, I think he can appreciate that more than I could. So uh, he purposely is uh, uh, trying to do that. And and again, uh, uh, the fact that person in his capacity, he's not just uh, your ordinary minister, or he's not Mr. O'Connell or Professor Weda, who is an outsider, but uh, he's, he's right in the middle, the very person who is responsible for doctrinal interpretation, and he is the one that is trying really sees a lot of problems in him. And you know, he's about 73 or 4, and, and I, I think that uh, he says that before I go, I want to do something positive. And uh, so, uh, uh, but he feels a very strong, but, and, and uh, some of the, re- and he really senses, like, feels a sense of crisis in Hong Kong. And then, for the reasons for why he feels the crisis, is, um, I mean, these are not anything earth-shaking. He feels that urbanization and breakdown in traditional family systems or uh, breakdown in tradi- traditional worldview because of science, you know, these are the reasons why a traditional interpretation of Jyotishin is not really making, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not reaching, reaching uh, the people. And so, um, uh, we have to understand that many of the temples in the Jyotishin uh, temples were in the rural areas, not in the urban areas. And so that uh, this whole need to re- reinterpret and become more relevant is also a question of uh, uh, rural areas, as opposed to the, uh, the urban areas and, and, and the younger generation. Now, um, he also says that the, from the, the traditional approach has fostered passivity. And I, I probably don't need to really talk about that too much, but, uh, you know, talk about Muga and self-effacing. Um, especially the idea of Muga uh, non-self has led to, to the members not really taking responsibility, thinking on their own. And he says that the uh, uh, is non-self, but he says in uh, uh, when, when uh, someone uh, in Buddhism, once you become uh, awakened, uh, you develop the great self that an uh, uh, enlightened person has a, a tremendous sense of subjectivity, that they can think on their own, uh, they have uh, opinion on, on their own, they can challenge society. It's not simply to, to uh, you know, uh, flow, flow with the establishment. And that's why he feels that uh, Buddhism during the Second World War uh, colluded with government. And, uh, and because they, they, they uh, used Muga, or non-self, to me, uh, lose your subjectivity, uh, give yourself up to the emperor and the military. And then he feels uh, that uh, Buddhism got, in, got itself into that position because uh, it, it, it only focused more on, on, on non-self and didn't go and talk about the real essence of the goal of Buddhism, which is to really become alive, you know? uh, not to just follow, follow the, the political leaders. And so, um, uh, so he uses the word, you know, we're not, we're not puppets. Now, uh, we think in Amida Buddha, and, and, uh, uh, Uyama, and I want to focus on Uyama, and, uh, 
And here, to make this, uh, and in some of this uh, is, is nothing really earth-shaking, but uh, I hope, uh, and, and, and I, I will also say that what uh, William Sensei talks about uh, is, is already being talked about, about, talked about in the U.S. In some ways, we're ahead of the game, I think. Uh, of course, well, okay. So, um, um, yeah, I have a tendency to stop in the middle of the, my wife has criticized me, saying that you, you try to make a point and you stop in the middle. And uh, so, actually, when I went to India four years ago to give lectures at a Catholic college, and I guess I was doing a lot of that, and even the young Indian uh, seminarians uh, made that observation. Uh, he's, you know, he's okay, but uh, he kind of uh, sits, starts out a sentence and stops in the middle. But I'll, I'll make that point at the end, so don't worry. <laughs> so, uh, here, here is a kind of a diagram. It's just a diagram, so... But Amida, as you know, there is, uh, and Leama Sensei says, there are obviously two levels. The Amida of the sacred story. This is the what we find in the largest sutra. And all of you know about the Dharma, uh, Dharmakara, um, you know, becoming a prince, uh, former king, becoming a monk, and out of compassion, <coughs> he, uh, he uh, wants to establish a pure land, so he engages in practices and he directs that marriage for the establishment of pure land. And so, that story, so I call it, uh, he calls it sacred story. Uh, by the way, I think he got this from me. <laughs> sacred story. I, I'm reading this article and it says, Sacred story. And because, uh, so, I, I haven't asked him, but I think, uh, uh, and, and by the way, I didn't think of this term. I got it from Professor James Dobbins of uh, Oberlin, many, many years ago when he was, so I was, I like this word, sacred story, rather than saying myth. Myth is a kind of a lowest term. So anyway, on this level, the two levels when it comes to Amida, you have the, uh, what's called the uh, alternate level, or the, uh, uh, well, utmost level, uh, Buddhahood, uh, and here's the Japanese word, Shinyo Hosho. Uh, and I, I'm called, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try with a new word called foundational reality. Foundational reality. A lot of times people say true reality, or Dharmakaya, or, not, or you can use the word nirvana, makes it, I think it's the most common, uh, easily understood uh, term. So, uh, Amida is a, a representation in form, in a story form. And so, uh, uh, so this, this is, and, and then a senior, well let's say foundational reality, or nirvana, is the, the source from which Amida uh, emerged. Uh, so, formless and form. Ultimately, we never know what this is. We as ordinary beings will never, will not fully comprehend the, 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 the foundational reality. Even Amida, in my opinion, you can never know fully. But we know through uh, we can experience Amida through the name Namu Amida. That's why Namu Amida is very important. And 
And I think that we need to, to resuscitate that practice of reciting the name. And, and I noticed that some of the ministers are, are, are uh, uh, kind of pushing for that, arguing for the importance of Namahami you know, as practice, as way of expression of gratitude or whatever. So, for us, and we are here, we are here, and we, as Joe to uh, Amida, the narrative is important, but we know that that is not the ultimate. And so, William Sensei basically says that we ought to be talking more about at this level, and, and talk about this more from a philosophical, rational point of view, and talk about this so that you'll make more sense to uh, contemporary people. Okay, now, um, so that is, uh, he actually doesn't offer a solution. In fact, he just simply says that, uh, if he keeps talking about Amida, it's kind of, you know, presented as a, as a, as a, a supreme being, uh, a divine being, uh, kind of a, a, a godlike human figure. And, and, uh, that, that has, um, um, made sense to a lot of people in the past, but, not necessarily so now. Uh, so we need to talk about what lies behind it. And Shinnah Tony also talks about the uh, distinction. In many of his different places in his writings, he talks about it. So uh, he says we should be more rational and philosophical, but he doesn't say how. Now, there's another person, his name is Akira Omine, Omine Akira. And he's central idea. He is a, uh, a a scholar of Western philosophy by Spain, a very interesting person. Uh, he's also a poet, and he says that, unlike with with, with uh, William Asensi, he says this Amida, as part of sacred story, is very important. We shouldn't throw it away. We shouldn't dump it. That we, because, as um, as you know, it, it, it's a mess. It's mess in the true sense of the word. It doesn't mean it's a fairy tale. But it's the story, presentation of the foundational reality in ways that we can appreciate through poetic language. And that uh, through that poetic language, uh, as poetic language, we are somehow able to get glimpse or come in touch with the ultimate foundational reality. So that uh, we shouldn't, uh, we should treat it very carefully and keep it. So, uh, so you have these two people. And the third person, uh, whom is, is the main, uh, first, oh, before I, I, I do that, um, um, I wanted to also, uh, I have a, a chart here, uh, which is a survey that I did, uh, 1990. Boy, I was surprised when I heard, when I saw this. It's been 17 years since I did this. I, I did this. This was taken at uh, when I was a, a, a young scholar, a young faculty at the IBS, uh, and, and uh, I sent out questionnaires to uh, some of the ministers, asking them to give it to their lay people. And I asked, what does Amida mean to you? And 38 responses. And if you look at it, it's very interesting. This is the American piece, uh, uh Buddha who resides in the Western Pure Land. And those who felt Amida meant uh, that, you know, the Buddha who resides in the Western, 
uh, very few who thought that was the number one way in which they understood. And if you look at, in contrast, symbol of wisdom and compassion is 29 people out of 38 uh, ranked in number one. Meaning that, in a way, American Shin Buddhists don't see Amida, sacred story, uh, 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 literally. That, that this is a symbol for wisdom and compassion, which is the foundation, which is, which are dimensions of ultimate uh, foundational reality. So, uh, I think we, Jonathan Buddhists in, in this country, uh, have, have an understanding of that. But, uh, the fact that, uh, William Sensei points this out, of course the ministers and scholars understand this, 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 distinction, but the lay people probably do not as much. The ordinary lay people in Japan, Jodo Shinshu, they probably take art at, at, at this level and really don't see it so much as wisdom and com- a symbol of wisdom and compassion. Am I making sense? So, so I just wanted to point out that uh, this is another example where I think we're ahead of the game in some ways. That uh, uh, so um, now another person that I, I wish to talk about is thing is Hase Shoto, and he is a former professor at Kyoto University, which is, as many of you know, it's a national university, but not in uh, high rank. And, and now, after retiring, he is now teaching at Otani University. And Otani uh, is belongs uh, to the other branch. <laughs> we have a member from the other branch. Now, I further suggest that to point out this kind of sectarianism that still lies between uh, the West and East, and which is really, you know, from my point of view, it's kind of ridiculous. But it's very refreshing that he gave a talk at Bukoku University as the keynote speaker of the Shinshu, uh, Shinshu Society, Society for Shinshu Studies, that he was invited to be the keynote speaker, I think it's very significant. And actually, uh, this year, too, the past year, a professor from Oldham University was invited. So, on that level, there seems to be a lot more kind of interaction, give and take, but probably not so much uh, uh, amongst the administrators. Uh, I always say this uh, to, how many of you have been to Kyoto? Okay. How many of you have been to Nishimongan? All of you, of course, right? How many of you have been to Higashongan? Oh, so you're not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet if you ask the Japanese Jorotin to Nishimongan people, uh, it will be far less. That the number of people who have really gone to Higashongan uh, and actually going to the Hondo and, 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 and uh, really feel, well, I shouldn't say, uh, not just go there, but, you know, uh, express their wholehearted devotion to the Higashi statue. It may be hard, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm overstating it, but uh, I need to, you know, uh, continue with that. Uh, now, uh, with Hapi Shoto, uh, he, Speaks of uh, now uh, a number. 
instead of uh, using these terms, he uses the word creative nature and uh, creative nature. So in a way, uh, trying to look, rethink Amida from using kind of Western philosophical categories. And it, 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 when I read this, it kind of clicked with me. I said, oh, that makes sense. And, it, and the term in Japanese is no san seki shiden, which means creative nature. And shokan seki shiden, that which is created. So, uh, the, the, the creative nature, that which creates, the source, is life unseen, unfelt, behind what is created. All the nature and the people and all the things that we see, the forms and all of that, this is the created part. But there is life behind it, is, uh, uh, the creative nature, nature that creates, and it's the power of, of uh, that creator. And so, and, and he equates this with this level. By the way, um, this, this is kind of very complicated in many ways, but um, this circle is a great demarcation between the orthodox doctrine teachings of Jodo Shinshu, or Nishiongani Jodo Shinshu, my understanding of it, and then inside the circle is, is uh, my appreciation. And so there has to be kind of a, a distinction between my appreciation and then the orthodox doctrine. Okay, so uh, the creative nature comes out of this. It's this part. And, and, uh, and it's continuously um, uh, working to, to working towards it. And, and uh, one example I wanted to give all of us, all of you, if you could just uh, it does not seem very kind of ministerial-like, but uh, uh, put your hand and feel your pulse. Okay? Now, where is that pulse coming from? Well, okay, the count is the heart. Okay. But the heart doesn't stand by itself. It comes from the, because of the blood and, and, and the energy that we receive from the food and they where it works. Where does the food come from? Around yeah, okay. So, you get the, I mean, I don't need to do, you know, this is Dharma school kind of discussion, but, but it's really, you know, I felt at times when I'm sleeping, and I, I feel my heartbeat, and I said, wow, this is amazing. You know, on, you know, 24 hours, uh, seven days a week, they're just pumping, as long as we're alive, just pumping. But, it ha- it's connected to the rest of the universe that allows to make it. And so, well, you can say the, the food and the sun and all that, but even behind that, there is something that is pushing, all the factors that are pushing. This is the nature that creates. And so he equates that, Professor Choko says, that nature that creates is none other than foundation of reality. He also says that this kind of, of, of working cannot be understood intellectually. And we feel this is quite a bit. And he uses the word uh, uh, yogen, uh, emotive resolve. Um, I'm sorry, uh, 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 jo- joy 
joy. Joy is like joy is feeling, emotional. He is resolved or intention. Uh, that, that's how I translate That is not dise, it's not the rational, it's the joy. And that's how we need to, to be open to it. And also, he talks about, um, to really appreciate the, this working, we have to see if it's a matter of what I've translated as manifestation in reflection. Uh, it's the difference between yogen and ogen. And these are the terms he used. Ogen is, uh, uh, well, it's in the handout, so since we don't have too much time on it. Ogen, he says, is, is like Sakamuni Buddha. Sakamuni Buddha, Gautama Buddha, appeared in history. Ogen. So I call it uh, manifestation in history. But Yogen, uh, Yo is like A, like a, uh, well, a, I try to reflection. Through the reflection of the workings of the created nature, that one uh, <coughs> Uh, create within yourself an outlook that appreciates the what is called uh, the the working of foundational reality. And he also uses the word inoshi. And I like this word inoshi. As you know, in Japanese means like life. For uh, 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 yeah, I think life is the best for uh, uh, power. You know, it's the energy and energy. And I translate it as a, um, um, a light flow, boundless light flow. So boundless light flow that emanates out of the foundational reality. And that cannot be understood intellectually, but it can only be understood through reflection and commitment and integrating into your life. And that's why you might have uh, reciting of the name is important. And then, uh, and it is also a motive resolve, not an intellectual thing. And so, uh, so this is the way, uh, uh how, um, Professor Hasek, uh, talks about this. And, uh, now, what, what I want to do now is, is, is to, you know, because this is a kind of a rational kind of present, um, uh, presentation, and I want to put some meat to uh, what we mean by, what I mean by Vinoci or the working out of the foundational reality. And uh, uh, I, uh, so my point is that uh, uh, I feel, I agree with Professor Akira Omine that we shouldn't throw out the sacred story of Amida. That story it's very important. It's part of our tradition. <coughs> so, unlike William Asensio, who says, well, don't worry too much about that. Just be more philosophical. Uh, I don't particularly agree with uh, William Asensio in that regard. But I think it's important to keep Amida and his sacred story as a centerpiece of our teaching. Okay? And, and, uh, uh, but, that alone is not right. That, we need to recite the name, utter the name, but that alone is not enough. And for some people it might be enough, but for for me, there are, uh, we need to become more attentive, or we should find our way of appreciating uh, 
foundation of reality or Amida through the workings that appear in our nature, people, especially the loved ones, and they, on a level of appreciation now, I'm not saying that everyone has to think this way, but again, remember, I made a demarcation. This is in my realm of, 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 of appreciation. And needless to say, Buddhism is a religion, is a religion, especially Buddhism, it has to be my problem, my issue, not for anybody else. But for me, how do I appreciate the workings of Inoti out of the foundation of reality? And so, um, you know, the, how many of you are familiar with Freddie the Leaf? <laughs> the book Freddie the Leaf? Oh, you know, how many? Oh, you know, no, this is a, a well-known, it's kind of old now, but, you know, I, mean, I, I keep forgetting, uh, you know, life is impermanent, but it means it changes, things change. But it also means that things change really fast, you know. I keep saying I'm 30, 38, and in a way I feel like I'm 38, but it's, uh, you know, things have really moved quite quickly, and maybe the story uh, is something that was so much long ago in the past. <coughs> but okay, Freddie the Leaf is a story that sold uh, millions of copies, and I'm surprised that many of you don't know. And it was translated into Japanese, and it was a big hit over there. It's about a, 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 Fred, a thief named Freddy. And, and essentially, he talks about impermanence and death. And they sold a lot in America because he dealt with the issue of death. In a way that was kind of palatable, that people understood. Um, and it's about Freddy, and he, has, uh, he works with his friends on the tree, uh, on, on the branch, to provide shade for the people who come to the park, and he's very happy, and, and he doesn't want to go anywhere, but the fall comes, and the wind blows, and people start, you know, leaves start shivering, and he doesn't know what's happening, some of the leaves start leaving, and he asks his, uh, Daniel, Daniel is uh, kind of like the, the wise old man of, uh, of the leaves, and he says, this has changed. We all have to be. And so he's, he, he's awake, he awakens to the reality of impermanence. So he's really frightened. He doesn't want to die. I don't want to die. And what Daniel says, you know, all things change. Everything changes. But, he knows that. Well, he was in Japanese. I think he was in life. In life is permanent. That eternal. And that we are we come out of, we come out of, uh, 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 you know, we come out of life, and then he returns to, to life. And so, in the story, um, um, it talks about life and death, and impermanence, and uh, eternal life. Eternal life, in a way, through nature. And it, it's very appealing. You want to you look at this. And then, when I first read this, I said, boy, Written, uh, written, uh, written by a guy named Leo Pascaglia. He was a professor at Southern, Southern uh, California, University of California. And I thought, this guy must know something about Buddhism or Eastern philosophy. And so right now I'm doing a, writing a, trying to write a book on American Buddhism. And I checked into his class.
in life, uh, in, in adulthood, you became very interested in Buddhism. There you have it. So here, he's written this very popular story that uh, talks about Hinochi um, and how, um, 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 you know, in spite of the change, we are part of this eternal, uh, well, eternal life. Now, um, the other, you know, I think nature, for me, I'm always speaking for, for nature really uh, provides for me a glimpse into to what I consider to be Amida and the foundation of reality. The other day, uh, I went to, uh, this summer I went to Berkeley Temple um, Picnic, and some of you were there. You know the famous uh, Berkeley Picnic? Oh, Campy. Campy, yeah. And then uh, we left uh, a little early the following day, and we go driving through the, the redwood trees, coming back to the Bay Area. And you know the redwood trees are just, just drawn. It's, it's uh, amazing. And as we came out, and we saw the California hills. And I love the California hills. The old trees, and the hills, brown hills. My Japanese colleagues, they don't really appreciate the brown hills. They say, is that pretty? <laughs> well, for me, because I grew up in this area, and, and the old tree, and the, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's just so moving. And then, that morning, the fog was coming up from, from over the hill, and the sun was coming up. And the fog was made of silk, silver, like the gentleman's uh, hair. <laughs> it was just the whole, and then the brown, brown hills, and the dark green oak trees, and boy, I said, this is, this is up here. This is your nice inside the language. Uh, that, you know, so, <coughs> and there is, um, you know, nature, uh, there's a famous uh, Keiko Hirano, who passed away at the age of 38, uh, leaving a uh, uh, disabled daughter, and you know, so this is a very famous story. And as she is dying, she says, to, you know, well, uh, when I die, uh, smile like the old people always did, and uh, I will wait for you in the pure land, and together we will become the wind and play the branches with the birds. Now. Some people not, may not relate to that, but I, you know, to become a part of the wind. And in that, the wind from the pure land. And this is the realm of, 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 of emotive uh, resolve. Uh, I also mentioned date of people. And, uh, and, you know, people, in fact, uh, people make life worthwhile. <laughs> and uh, especially your loved ones. And I have in the handout there, uh, uh, my wife's cancer scare. And um, last year I, I wasn't been able to talk about this. But, uh, and it's because I made a point that Buddhism has to be very personal. And I thought that I need to talk about something that is very personal. Well, the, the, end, the end result was that I don't think she has cancer. But a year ago, we were told by the doctor, that, you know, uh, uh, she, she, they found a little uh, a spot on her liver. And, you know, uh, a lot of people get this, but um, uh, if it grows, it's a problem. So uh, she had it a year or two years ago. She hasn't grown. And, but the beginning of last year, we go, so we go for annual checkup. Actually, Japan has a very good uh, health system. They, they do this thorough checkup. And so, but it had grown. So they said, you've got to go and 
to get it checked out. And uh, the, the doctor in charge uh, in a very pretty bad scenario, you know, that, well, someone like you who don't have any problem hepatitis or anything, if, you, if, it, if it has grown, then it's an indication that it has spread from another place. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, no. You know, I mean, it, it's... So, uh, um, so, we went through a bunch of tests, and, and, and so, so obviously, uh, of course, you know, I personally know that uh, that my wife means a lot to me, and I'm sure it means a lot to a lot of you. But uh, uh, when I was going through all of this, it just uh, made me all the more realize how much weird it means to me. Uh, it's something that you know we can say it in our head, but unless you go through it, uh, it really didn't hit home. And uh, uh, so. I don't know, I think she did a better job of coping with this, the uncertainty, than, uh, than myself. And I felt very disappointed with myself. Here I am a Buddhist scholar, Buddhist minister, supposed to be able to deal with this kind of situation, but it turns out I was pretty bad. You know, it, 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 you know I hate to... Uh, I mean, but, um, now, so we went, you know, every um, uh, these this checkups, and, and uh, it looks as though it's not cancer. And, not, and, and, you know, obviously there are people here that even I know we have had, have gone through this. And, and uh, uh, someday, you know, pretty pretty good chance that one of us will get cancer and we'll be, you know, we'll just wait. I think in this uh, circumstance. But my point is that through all of this, uh, you, I really, truly, how important she was to me. So this year, when I left Japan, I bought her a dozen roses. <laughs> I used to buy only six. <laughs> so I was doubly. So I made sure I, I buy something. Actually, I had all, so much into this kind of you know, holiday. I feel like you're forced to buy things. What's important is what you do for her every day. But in reality, maybe I don't do what I should do. <laughs> but such is the nature of our, our relationship, isn't it? But, uh, um, uh, so through people, and so to me, I, I, I feel like if we ever talk about, we talk about compassion and caring, for me, it's through real life people, you know? And, and, and it, it, it's not to say that my wife is Yukamida, uh, although Shinran Shoni saw his wife is at uh, Kannon, or, or, uh, or uh, uh, Shinni uh, saw, saw Shinran Shoni as Guanyin, as, uh, a uh, manifestation of, you know. And so I think we can have, uh, so I think that it's a kind of a, uh, it's, uh, it's, a model for us to think about. And so through this experience that uh, I, I no longer take things for granted and I think that uh, 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 we've, been living, we've been married for 30 years and, and uh, this, this year I think things have changed. You know, I, I personally feel a lot different. And, and, uh, and so uh, we try, uh, I, I try to, to live you know, every day as fully as possible. Uh, and then, uh, so, uh, 
So, oh yeah, I know what. Um, so, if this isn't really cancer, we're not sure completely. I, I think it's pretty, pretty certain. And, uh, uh, but, but, uh, uh, so it, it may be that, that the guy who measured it from year one to year two, he made a mistake. He, maybe he measured it a little bit in the wrong way, so he came out bigger. So, if this was the case, I was going to go and really complain because I went through hell. I mean, mentally, it was very, very difficult. I never had anything as difficult as this. Except for when I first broke up uh, 30 years ago. Uh, I didn't get much reaction. My first, you know, many of you have had first romance. And when they broke up, it was pretty hard because you never had experienced it. And I, I went through that in 1969 when I was studying Buddhism at IDF. And I remember uh, we were all living together in the summer youth program. Reverend Kavada was there. and But we were all going through issues, you know. But uh, actually, uh, so anyway, uh, I, I'm not... Okay, I'll, I'll finish the sentence. <laughs> I, I was hearing a lecture from uh, Professor Weda. Uh, famous, uh, you know, way of sensei, and he's talking about life is suffering, life is impermanent, and I had received this letter from my girlfriend in Berkeley saying, well, dear Ken, you are a nice guy, but, <laughs> and, you know, they all say, well, we, you know, when you're not working out, and so, uh, so I'm hearing the uh, way of sensei talk about life is suffering, and, and, and I'm seeing this letter, and it was really traumatic, so I went to Reverend Kogata, uh, hoping for some kind of a, Control, but he said, um, well, he, he wasn't he wasn't very receptive. <laughs> That's why you said something like that. So let it go. I said to myself, it's easier for you to say. <laughs> so, but he's been a very good friend all these years. You know. But I won't go to him when I have problems. <laughs> okay, so in closing, I wanted to share with you another example of um, a, a, a young woman at Yukok University, uh, who obviously is a student of Belarusian shoes, and she lost her mother at the age of 50. She's about 23, and she had written this in a, in a magazine, and I, I happened to be at Yukoku, and I come coming through it, and she really hit me, and I said, wow, and she's talking about, through her mother, that she understands uh, the workings of Omega, and so I wanted to uh, close with that, uh, it's a kind of a poem that, uh, that you might, hopefully you'll find uh, Meaningful. Being great. Mom, was your life short? Or was it long? Everyone says that it was short. But 50 years is more than twice my age. 50 years is half a century, isn't it? Half a century seems somehow very long. Mom, was your life a happy one? Or an unhappy one? Everyone says that they feel sorry for you because you got cancer. Mom, you experienced a lot of suffering from cancer. It must have been really hard when you lost your breath. 
you know, I wanted to give you mine. And it sure was scary when we thought about the cancer spreading. I really wanted to give you my life. When we were told that you only had three months to live, we were so saddened, so frightened, and felt such pain that our tears wouldn't stop. Mom, since you've been gone, it's been quite lonely. But you know what? It's strange to say, but I like my mom with cancer. Actually, I like you much more than before you got cancer. I really don't know why, but I like you even more. Mom, there were a lot of things you taught me after you got cancer. You taught me about the hardships of illness, my weaknesses, the fragility of life, people's kindness, and gratitude. I remember you were always so grateful. Even though you knew that your life was coming to an end, your words of thank you were incredibly powerful and profoundly moving. It was just a simple phrase, thank you, arigato. But they were warm and made me feel good inside. Having got cancer, mother, you lived life fully. You treasured each and every moment. You treasured every person that you spoke to and every person that you met. You lived life fully, so very fully. I like my mother who lived life to its utmost. Mom, was your life short? Was it long? Mom, was your life a happy one or an unhappy one? Mom, I wonder if I can live as long as you. I wonder if I can live my life as fully as you did. I can't ask you that now, can I? But you know, Mom, there is one thing that you taught me, which I realized after you were gone, when I put my hands in God's show and recite, Namo Amidabutsu, Namo Amidabutsu, I feel as though you are embracing me. Yes, I'm being embraced by my mother's incredible warmth and compassion. Mom, Whatever happens to me in life, I know that you will always be with me. Mother, thank you. So, that is a young woman who actually very, very clearly felt the working of foundational reality or Abhida through her mother. And so, my point is that Amida itself, the doctrine itself is not enough, and perhaps in America, further away from Kyoto than Tokyo, much further than Tokyo, that we are freer to kind of um, um, broaden the scope of how we understand Amida. It's not at the doctrinal level, because I think doctrinal level, I certainly don't have the ability, you know, the capacity to change it. We can only follow what our masters have taught us. What we can do is to really look at how we integrate the teaching. And so, I posited today, uh, nature, people, and I forgot to talk too much about the philosophical dimension, that Professor Rayama advocates philosophical rational interpretation. I think he wants to put it up here somewhere, but I think we need to put it at the uh, uh, 
at, at, at this level, along with some of the things that I have thought, thought about. Philosophical and rational interpretation is not any better than the emotive and emotive and emotional appreciation. They, I think, are basically different ways of appreciating. Some people are philosophical, rational, and they make sense. Other people uh, like, like nature and people. Uh, through them, they have they get glimpses of Amida. And so, uh, again, ultimately, it is up to you, each and every one of you. The tradition can only present this, but it's up to us to find the avenues through which we come to appreciate Amida. And that sacred story of Amida is very important, and we shouldn't throw it away, but make it a centerpiece of our appreciation, and through which we recite the Nambutsu, and we come to appreciate the Nambutsu through these other uh, manifestations in our lives that are very close to you, that are very everyday in our lives. And if you can do that, I'm confident that we'll have a better understanding and appreciation of Amida. And at the end, when it's all over, that you have a greater sense of, of well-being, a sense that you are part of this great reality. And that, if you notice that, I put Amida down here as well. So that often we think of Amida is up there, and we're here, but actually Amida is all around us. It's down here, and that's why I like the word foundational reality, because it's coming from underneath, from side, and from all around. Thank you very much. Uh, 
Professor Lisa Blumbach, if you stand up, who is another one of the IBS faculty, and now Professor Dr. Reverend David Matsumoto. Um, this is an opportunity to congratulate him publicly for the completion of his doctorate. <laughs> uh, the Institute of Buddhist Studies is a part of a larger project. It's a part of the Buddhist Churches of America. Uh, and so in, in small gesture in that direction, I would like to introduce and thank Mr. Glenn Zameda, who's standing there, who is the Jodosh Institute Center's building manager, uh, who's done an excellent job in taking this facility from when the contractor finished and handed the keys over to an operating working building. Um, I would also like to uh, introduce Mr. Mesa, has already been mentioned. Uh, he was the headquarters staff, uh, of which ECA headquarters runs the national program, and IBS is the beneficiary of, and in fact is Michael Endo, <laughs> also uh, of the ECA headquarters staff. Um, I want to express my appreciation to all of them for the work that they do that makes it possible for us to have this program here tonight. Um, one of the things that has always in the past been very, very hard for me to do is to ask for donations. Uh, is to ask people to contribute to the Institute of Buddhist Studies. And I realize that what I implicitly am doing if I don't ask for donations, if I don't ask for contributions, is saying that I don't think it's worth anything. I hope that you found tonight's presentation. Dr. Donato's thoughts over the last 30 years about the nature of Amida and the role of Amida in our lives of value to you. And if you found it to be of value to you, one of the ways that you can participate in the ongoing process of the Buddhist Churches of America and the Institute of Buddhist Studies is by donating to the campaign. Um, my own only one successful fundraising project was a success because a number of people, a large number of people, were willing to make very small donations. The amount doesn't matter. It's the cumulative effort that is really important. So tonight I break with my own personal tradition and ask for you to consider making contributions and donations to the DCA campaign, to the Institute of Buddhist Studies, and any of the people that I introduce will be glad, now that I've told them, <coughs> will be glad to talk to you about how donations can be made. So at this point then, I'd like to open it up for any uh, discussion. Uh, we'll use this mic. Um, I'll get uh, comments, questions, discussions that any of you might have. We'll take just a few minutes. This is your opportunity. Don't miss out. <laughs> I don't want that. You don't want that. <laughs> I'll keep it. I just want to say how much I appreciate Reverend Thank you very much. Uh, Alan was uh, at the, his, 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 his church. And 
when I was in Minnesota there for three years, uh, you were one of the most supportive people and you could be and I wish you success in the earth and the earth. Good to see you.
very complicated long, you know. Uh, but I, I think, I, I really think that we, we need to, to be more, more, uh, what is it, uh, uh, engaging. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much. I listened to your talk. I'm very new to Shoreland Edition. I've actually been practicing Zen uh, for over 30 years. And the thing that attracted me to uh, Pureland teaching was uh, reading by Dr. Uno's book. And, and the fact that Shinran himself seemed to come from the mud point of view that, uh, you know, uh, and that was really what brought me and attracted me because of the fact that I found them to be too much involved with uh, the Lotus. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, it was interesting to me that you should be saying that we have to either get back to the mud or kind of refocus our efforts on, um, on the training or the practice itself. Uh, I, I just found that the reason I came was now what I'm hearing is that that primary Shinbuddhism is not there. Uh, what do we turn to well, that? Well, maybe I missed something. Well, just let me just clarify. I, I mentioned this uh, not necessarily in reference to Kilbuchishi, but I was referring to those uh, Zen and uh, uh, anthropologists. They were speaking of Zen Buddhism in general, uh, not just Kilbuchishi. So, in that, but even Jyotishis to some extent, even though we talk about the mud, I think we have a tendency to, to, to emphasize the kind of the transcendent nature. Um, and, and as if we're, you know, Buddhism is separate. Thank you. Well, the the ondoksan, you know, our death, our death, our sense of uh, gratitude towards Amida, that kind of uh, sentiment is very important, and it, it belongs very much to the sacred story and how we feel a sense of gratitude. But my point of today, the point of today's talk was to to enlarge the scope, not just advance the traditional approach, which I think is very important. That's why I think we need to keep that kind of sentiment. But uh, that alone, in order for, for it to, to make sense to a broader, wider uh, range of people, that we have to think of other ways. So it's, it's, not, it's not to eliminate that or to negate or reject that. And, uh, and, and if, if, you, if you appreciate these kinds of, uh, of expressions, then you will feel naturally. You'll come to feel uh, on the sense of death. Not because they, um, you know that circle that you have, divided into Yeah. Uh, uh, being, a, being a psychotherapist that you are. But you're pretty senior, yeah. To not um, to, to 
the children, even at a young age, have the big picture mm. that they're going all the way to the transcriptional. Mm. And even though we have to train them and, and um, instruct them in a way that builds their character and builds their ego strength, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's not true, but also um, they need to know that there's something beyond that, or mm. else then they just become yeah. yeah, that's a good point. That's why, as a Buddhist organization, as Buddhist uh, speakers, or that we need to, to mention that. Uh, but if you don't, if you just mention this part, for a lot of people who are not, for, those who are not aware of Buddhism, um, it just seems uh, maybe too, too divorced. And that if you can tie it in with the personal growth, of each and every person in society, then Buddhism can uh, be part of this integral process. And, uh, but you know, it's interesting, at this level, uh, I, uh, Robert Ellis, is it? Uh, Ellis is the, he's the founder of the... Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis. Albert Ellis. He's the founder, he's still alive, I understand, like close to 100. And he, he uh, his approach is, uh, is you know, the way, when, when I think about the way I talk about Buddhism, it's very much uh, uh, Mr. Ellison's approach. It's basically ABC. Uh, he talks about activating a uh, effect. There's something, you know, When something happens, activating events in our lives, for example, of breaking up with your girlfriend or being rejected, it doesn't activate an event. But if you think that relationships are forever, then if that's your belief, then you will have negative consequences or you suffer. And so Buddhism says that, you know, all things are impermanent. So if you don't have that kind of belief, then, you know, uh, if you... If, if she rejects you, ah, there are many fishes in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and move on. You know, and then, uh, <laughs> Oh, so, you mean you really can't do it? Or, if you just did that done? But, well, but in a way, but if you think about the Dharma talk, what often has this pattern, I think, you know, it's very, you know, bring in your Buddhist teaching and you can deal with problems here. So anyway, uh, so we can bring this, this kind of approach here as, you know, teenagers and even young people. Uh, we don't have to talk about non-self. That's why I don't translate non-self as Muga uh, as non-self. I, I use interdependence. Uh, because I think for younger, uh, you know, children it's hard to, to, to understand fully. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you're starting uh, discussion, uh, applying the uh, psychological aspects to the Buddhist teaching and so forth. But you also mentioned uh, from the psychotherapeutic approach. Uh, I'm wondering if you're bringing in anyone, say, from the 
how are behavioral sciences, particularly social, social psychology, uh, considering that if you go back to your, uh, your illustration of the lotus and talking about the mud, the fact is that as human being, we are human because we are members of society. And the mud uh, in our present day and age uh, is really the, the delusion uh, created by the people around us. Buddhism or any religion has no meaning unless you take the concept of the individual within other early society groups. Yeah, well, uh, we're not confined to any one particular uh, branch of psychotherapy, but, but I think Jungian, what little I know of Jungian is that there is a collective consciousness that there are, uh, you know, uh, collectivity is very important. Yeah, well, I'm not talking so much about collectivity, but the fact that, you know, the, the fact that our ignorance in reality is our delusion. The false ideas and the false ideas we do not generate ourselves in most parts. They're, they're received from others. Uh -huh. really. yeah. All those concepts of compact, what do we mean by compact? It's meaningless unless you take the concept of our relationship with others. Uh -huh. So when you start getting into the realm of uh, psychological theories mm -hmm. in various times, uh, I, I, my personal feeling. Uh, based on, I don't understand, you know, 40 years ago, but, but I think it's important to bring it in the context of our relationship. Yeah. And then that way, then, you know, what are the meanings of compassion? If it's something I'm supposed to Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, psychotherapy can be more individualistic. It's very personal. So that, again, this is not a, a solution to, to, to all the problems of how to present Buddhism, but it's one, one, two. Can I make a comment on sure. this? Uh, <coughs> I think there's a whole uh, dimension here of integrating psychotherapy into what Shigeru made in terms of social psychology, but I think a lot of it is that even as Buddhists, when we talk about psychotherapy, we're, we're still talking theoretically. Part of it is if you haven't gone through a therapy to look at even one issue you might be dealing with, it doesn't have to be anything profound, you know. And then you don't invest your own mind and emotions in trying to grasp, uh, grapple with these issues. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're alone or in, in society, so to speak, you could slump off your own personal responsibility. And look at it as it's, uh, it's external to you. What psychotherapy does, I think, and I think many people are afraid to do it, I find it perhaps even more alarming than in the Japanese American community. It might be even more taboo, you know. And even amongst ministers, it's taboo. Uh, though we talk about understanding the self, I think uh, it's easy to do, use examples of self at the surface level, but there are some real profound things that all of us carry that if you really need a listening ear and to see your own process, to listen to how you suffer, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's revealing but it's also exhilarating. And I think uh, this area 
it just talks over too lightly. And I think the, the whole connection to spirituality has to deal with a very profound personal sense of suffering. And this is not uh, just psychological, but the psychological is the way that we begin to clearly see it. And so, I'm, I think that uh, the psychotherapeutic, uh, the integration of them in the process of, uh, let's say, Shinji, is extremely important. <laughs> yeah. We have time for one more question. Um, going back to the beginning of your talk with the four academics on the panel, um, and and their sort of understanding of Amida, um, which can seem sort of um, sterile or incomplete, at least to someone like me, is there, is there room or merit to this kind of study and understanding? Uh, when you say this, you mean the, the objective philological? Right, right, the rational philological. Well, it's, it's one of the, when you talk about Buddhist studies, it's the mainstream. And, and, and it, it has its purpose, obviously. It's clarified for us the meaning of different texts that we found. Also, it uh, uh, kind of gave us an understanding of, of how different schools ideas developed in Buddhist history, different themes of Buddhism, and how it relates to... Uh, so, for, for that, it has its purpose. But that's not what we do necessarily here at idea. You know, we're much more theological, and and uh, so there's a clear a distinction. Um, but I think we can, you know, learn from both. Uh, so, yeah, well, uh, I, I wouldn't I want to tell Professor Bob Clark of UC Berkeley that your endeavors uh, doesn't have much meaning. You know. So, uh, but uh, I think it's important. I mean, many of us went through that process. But for me, it wasn't really something that really clicked with me. I mean, I, I use it. You know, I, I, I had that as a kind of a, a foundation, but um, I enjoyed more of what it means to me. And because ultimately Buddhism deals with how to overcome suffering. And uh, that, that kind of approach uh, doesn't really help you very much. In fact, it increases suffering. <laughs> for those who can't do this, who don't like it. I'd like to thank all of you for coming out and joining us this evening. And I'd like another hand for the time.